I'm going to offer a, a two-part message, and we're going to split in the middle, and we're going to have time for just reflection and to see what God is doing. And so for those of you that see me finish in about 20 minutes, you say, man, that was the best Easter sermon I've ever heard. I mean, good gracious, I've got time to go home and cook a whole meal from scratch. Uh, we're not done yet. And so don't, don't get up at that point. I say that to those of you who are here for the first time because this isn't the first time we've used this pattern here at Ridgecrest. Today we're going to be in Romans chapter 6, the first 14 verses. Now, what Paul is doing in Romans 6, in some ways, is an explanation of what he has said and a corrective for what he has offered in the fifth chapter. You see, Paul in Paul writing in Romans chapter 5 and verses 20 and 21 wrote these things. He said, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Catch that. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That is, if sin reigned in death, that grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so there were some in the community that heard Paul's teaching on sin and grace. And, and, and being kind of based of mind, they thought of it like this. Like, all right, hold on. Let me, let me get this clear. He says, he says, when I sin, I get more grace. Man, grace is good. And so if I've got to do bad things to get good things, hey. <laughs> I didn't say it. Paul said it. I'm just going to go for it. And so these people entered into a lifestyle of just pursuing whatever passion they had. Because for them, they had the base understanding that when they sinned, grace increased in, in, in line with that. And so Paul, he responds. He looks at that, that doctrine, that understanding, this, this spurious understanding of what he was trying to communicate. And he comes at them with pure theology, with pure doctrine, with a corrected understanding that we can just enter into this life with Christ and get to live however we want to. And he answers it in the most ardent way that he can, the most strict way that he can. So he opens up chapter 6 and he says, what should we say then? Essentially, what should we say to this line of thought? He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And so he lets that hang out there. He allows that question to permeate and to work its way down into those that are hearing this letter read. Should we continue in sin so that grace could just continue to overflow and cover all the things that we do wrong in life? And how does he answer that? He says, by no means. He says, by no means, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Paul answers in the most harsh corrective way possible if we're going to put this into our vernacular in the way that we would normally engage in conversation and somebody says you know hey should we sin so that grace can abound you say man ain't no way sweet brown might say ain't, ain't nobody got time for that i can't be entered into this type of lifestyle where i just get to do whatever i want to do paul responds and he says he says by no means he said that's not anything to do with what i was trying to communicate to you that lifestyle that, that, that comes in and says that, man, I am all under grace now and I get to do whatever I want to do, is so completely foreign. It's so completely contrary to the gospel that, it, that there's no room in the gospel of Jesus Christ for that attitude, for that lifestyle that, that buys in but has no life change, that buys into the saving of Jesus but doesn't buy into the life transformation of Jesus. You see, it is all or nothing. He says, by no means. You can't have it this way. 
You see, it as we look in chapter 6 and verses 1 through 14, Paul gives us essentially three things that, that we should know. Now, this isn't clever preaching tactic. He actually says in three separate places, he says, know this, or you should know this. And then he gives us some points of application there at the end. It is just a beautifully laid out thing. It essentially says, on the basis of what you know and what you should know, do these things. So let's look at the first of these three things that we are to know. We are to know that we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. As we look at verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul writes, he says, he says in verses 3, 4, and 5, he says that, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, this is, I mean, this is a very difficult passage as we look at it and we seek to understand this close union that we have with Christ that, that Paul writes and he says, you need to know how intimately connected you are with Jesus. You see, the, the basic understanding of, of if you were to ask somebody, are you connected with Jesus? And they'd say, oh, absolutely. <clears throat> I've got salvation in Jesus' name. And say, well, what about, did you, did you die with Jesus? And they said, whoa, I mean, that's kind of that's that's different sounding there. I don't really know where you're headed. But Paul writes and he says, he says, we died with Christ. He says that you have been baptized into Christ, that you were baptized into his death. Now, Paul isn't talking about water baptism. We're not going to line up a tub at the back of the sanctuary and say, hey, look, have you been baptized into his death? Okay, no, okay, you, you jump in and, and you jump out and we're just going to line everybody up. But what he's talking about is this close, intimate union. He uses baptism as a picture for union with Christ. Only saved people are baptized. And so he, he uses this formula and he says that we have been baptized with him into his death. And see that when Christ was stretched out on the Roman cross and his arms were, were pulled from side to side and his feet were nailed there and he breathed his last, we too died with Christ. We too died with Christ. And he goes on and he says in verse 4, he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He goes on and he says, look, it's not just that you died with him, but you are also buried with him. That you're also buried with him by baptism into death. For what purpose? For what purpose did, did God enter into this plan and this purpose to have us die with him, to be buried with him? And so that we might walk in newness of life. This is similar to the teaching that John reports to us in John chapter 3. That Jesus is, is meeting with Nicodemus and he's talking about what he might do to, to, to get eternal life. And Jesus' word to him is, you have to be born again. You have to have the birth from above. It's this idea that, that the old self is dead. That we have newness of life. We live a new life in Christ. But what does that look like? 
What does that picture even look like? You see, if we look back at verse 2, Paul asks the question, he says, How can we who have died to sin still live in it? We experience newness of life, but he asks the question, he says, How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And so this is a question that for some of us haunts us because we look at the way that we engage with our spouse as we're getting ready, even for church this morning, and you're like, where's my, where's my shirt? And she's like, oh, I left it at the cleaners. And you're like, well, what do you expect me to wear? I mean, just a, just a wife beater underneath here? What do you expect me to wear? I mean, all I have are, are V-neck t-shirts. And she says, well, you got some nice V-neck t-shirts. I mean, so it's this idea that... that we have such a hard time controlling our tongue. We have such a hard time controlling the way that we treat other people. We have such a hard time being judicious in our use of money. We have such a hard time engaging in upright business practices. I mean, we are just, we're, we're crushed, we're surrounded. We struggle with sin, do we not? Man, we struggle with it. We have such a hard time with it. Yet Paul writes, he says, we've died to sin. We see as we look at that, we see that sin has not died to us. Man, sin is alive and well. We see sin in the newspaper. We see sin on television. We see sin in, in the car on the way here. Yesterday, I saw a headline that said, said a man, in, a man had, had led a prostitute under his care to have his name tattooed on her eyelids. We see sin alive and well everywhere. And it's not just that, that sin doesn't have its effect on us anymore. It's not that, that we can achieve perfection, right? And we still struggle with sin. We still struggle to overcome the effects of sin in our lives. But what we have earned, what we have got in the cross, through what Jesus earned for us, is freedom from the authority of sin in our lives. We see that sin no longer has any authority in our lives because Christ conquered sin. He offers us not just forgiveness of sin, but he offers the death knell to sin's authority in our lives. And this is key to understanding this passage, that whenever we come across where he says, you have died to sin, we understand that it is talking about sin's authority in our lives. Not that sin is dead, not that sin doesn't affect us, but it does not have authority over us in our lives. He says, we were buried, therefore, in verse 4, by him, in baptism by death, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We realize that just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, you and I have newness of life. The old is gone, the new has come, as we have salvation in Christ, and it is affected by that. Not in something we did, not in something we accomplished, but by God's glory. That God has done this. And then we read in verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Man, this is the good news. That joining with him in his death, Paul makes this argument, he says, if you are with him in his death, then we will be with him in a resurrection like his. That for the Christian, this is not the end. That for the Christian, this life that is but a mist and a vapor and a passing moment is not the end. 
Because just as we have been baptized by death into his burial, and just as we have, have bought into his life, we have been promised, we have, have been given evidence that we too will have a resurrection like his. We see the second thing that we should know in verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Paul wanting to continue to draw in on the close union that the Christian has with God, that a Christian has with Christ. He says, we know that our old self was crucified in order that our body of sin might be brought to nothing. He says, look, he was, he was stretched out on the cross and he was crucified and your old self was there with him. Now, what is this old self he's talking about? You see, the old self he's talking about is absolutely everything in us prior to conversion. Everything. All the good, all the bad, everything in us prior to conversion is crucified with Him. It's nailed to the cross that in Christ as He was crucified, we too are represented and our old self was crucified with Him. For what purpose? He says to bring the old man to nothing. To bring this body of sin, this old man, to nothing so that we might recognize that we bring nothing to the equation, so that we might recognize and realize that, that the old has been let go, that the new has come. And he says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, in our former way of existence, our former life, living in the old man in this body of sin and body of flesh, we were given to sin and sin alone. Man, we couldn't, we couldn't choose for God. We couldn't do anything good in and of ourselves. We were, we were lost and didn't even know it. We were on a road trip with a map that took us somewhere that, that we didn't even know where the destination was. Our GPS was so messed up. We were so lost. Our compass pointed northeast, and we didn't even realize that we were headed in the wrong direction. But God comes in through Christ and offers us freedom from enslavement, <clears throat> but that God comes in through Christ and offers to purchase our freedom, but that God comes in through Christ and sets us free from slavery. Do you recognize that in your former way of existence that you are a slave to sin? Are you misled into thinking somehow that there was some good in you that wasn't crucified, some good in you that wasn't laid to waste, some good in you that, that perseveres? Friends, there was no good in you. The old self is gone. You were lost, mired in sin, and enslaved to its edicts, to its direction, to its guiding. But we have been set free from sin. He goes on and he says in verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. You see, we have been set free from sin, so we should no longer live as those enslaved by sins. We need no longer live as those who are under sin's authority. We have been set free from sin. As Christ has died and we died with him, so we have died to sin's authority. 
He says in verse 8, he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You see, there's this idea of already and not yet. That we already experience this newness of life, this rebirth, that we already experience freedom from sin's authority, but we recognize that this isn't the full story. We recognize that there is more. We recognize that there is still yet more to come, that we will live resurrected lives with Christ in glory. And finally, the third thing that he points that we should know. He said, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You see, 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way. It says, for Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's us. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, it's Christ died to sins once for all. There's nothing we could contribute. There's nothing that we can add to that. There's no way that we can come along and say, God, but you, you haven't met me. I can, I can enhance salvation in a way that you haven't even dreamed of. Man, God, there is, I've, got, I've got talents and abilities. I can juggle a bowling pin, a baseball, and a car at the same time. I mean, it's, it, it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. I can do this, God. I can add that to salvation. God says it doesn't matter. You bring nothing to the equation. nothing needs to be added. It's not weak or deficient in any way because Christ died a death to sin's authority once for all. In the life he lives, he lives to God. Do you see the beauty of salvation? That Christ accomplished what we never could. That he offers us something we could never purchase, earn, or discover on our own. Friends, we were lost and enslaved to sin. We were following our own passions, lusts, and desires. But God stepped into our lives. He interjected with Christ, and he offers to us salvation in him. For those of us who are already saved, we are with him in his death. We are with him in his burial. The old man has been crucified. We know that we have a close union with Christ. And it's beautiful. It's just absolutely beautiful.
says, I see your face, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. We see him in the morning sky, we see him in the glory of the sunrise, we see Christ in creation. He's imprinted on those of us that are made in his image. So let's sing this together. I see your face, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. You're beautiful, I see your face. I see your face, you're beautiful. You're beautiful, you're beautiful, I see your face. I see your face, you're beautiful. You're beautiful, you're beautiful. As we come back into this, Paul gives us a few points of application. Now, the interesting thing about this is if you've read through the book of Romans, this is the first place in the book that Paul offers a command. This is the first place that he offers an imperative. And so this is, he's been building all this doctrine and and all of this theology, and he gets to the place and he says, on the basis of this, so act. And this is how he chooses 
to, to spend his first command. He says in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, we're, we're, we're really, really comfortable to a certain degree saying, man, I have freedom from sin, right? I have freedom from sin's penalty in my life. Man. And that is, that's just, I mean, that's awesome. That is, it's the gospel that, that there is no penalty for us in sin because Christ has paid that on our behalf. But when we start talking about freedom from sin, and we get a little squeamish because we start thinking back over our week, and it's so much easier to think that we've got, we've got one foot hanging over here in sin, and we're like, I'm, I'm like 97%. If I cut this foot off, I would be free from sin. But this foot is really hanging me up, and that's the reason I treat all of you so badly. It's this foot. And so David says, well, hey, I'll, I'll cut that foot off for you. I'm like, I'm partial to it. I like where you're going. I'm partial to the foot. I'm just going to have to live with 97% freedom from sin. And so we think about it in a way so that we're able to hold on to and have a more comfortable existence with Christ. This thought that that we are losing a battle against sin, it it, it comforts us in, in our inability to do right. It comforts us in our inability to treat people the right way, to do business in a completely honest and transparent way. We say, oh, that's just common business practices. And man, sin is so hard to overcome. And so, it's, it's, you know, God will forgive me for that. God will forgive me for that. Paul says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he applies this accounting term where he's talking about you need to take a careful surveillance of your life. You need to take careful consideration. You need to look in depth at your life and the way that you are living and the way that you are spending your time and your money and speaking to people and all of these things and recognize that in every avenue of life, every breath you draw, every facet of existence, you're dead to sin. And you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now he goes on in verse 12 and he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin therefore reign in your body. Don't let it have dominion over you. Now, when I was in in preschool and kindergarten, there there was this one kid who was... I mean, a pretty serious bully um, to me. And I would say his name, but Greenville seems to be connected to every place on the planet. And I'm pretty sure that he doesn't live in Antarctica. And so somebody here is related to him, knows him or whatever. And so for the sake of his family, uh, we're going to call him future inmate number one. And so future inmate number one was a, a terror to all of his loyal subjects. I mean, I mean, classmates that were there with him. I mean, this kid, he, he ruled the sandbox, the jungle gym, and really anything else that he wanted to rule because at four foot tall and 45 pounds, he was a beast. I was, I was also his age, and so I was, I was smaller than him. Okay, so let's pretend he's nine feet tall and like 400 pounds as, as a preschooler. Are you, are you happier now? No? Okay. And so this kid was a terror 
on the playground. I mean, he just, I, I think about him now, and I still get a little bit, I have this uneasy feeling. I mean, he was probably on some type of early rollout of performance-enhancing drugs. I mean, as evidenced by his freakish proportions and extra-large head, this kid was, was taking something to give him an added edge on the playground, and it was terrifying. Nobody wanted to be around him, and future inmate number one knew that, and he used it to his, uh, well, to his joy and, and, and playground dominance, and I was, I was terrified of him. Now, say that I'm to go, if, if, if I were able to go as an adult and confront this four-foot-tall, 45-pound beast of the playground. And I were to walk over to him, and he's on the sand pit, and he's standing there and all of his four-foot-tall with his jamborees and his Velcro shoes, and he is, he's looking, and, and, and I walk over to him, and he's standing there glaring at me, and I walk over to him, and I fall down on the ground. And I say, the sandbox is yours. The playground is yours. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, I've, I've got over two feet on this kid. I've got over 150 pounds on this kid. I, not to mention an intellectual advantage in, in, in the ability to function without a nap. I mean, there are so many things that I have in my possession that, that he can't even conceive of. But as ridiculous as it sounds, this is exactly what we do. When we make a choice to sin, when we enter into decisions and we choose to sin, we walk over to that little kid and we give him back his authority. He is defeated. He has no control over us. He has no authority over us. When we walk over, when we sin, we effectually walk over and give back power to a defeated foe. Paul writes and he says that in verse 12 that we are not to allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies. He says because we are dead to sin's authority, we should not allow sin therefore to reign in our body and to make us obey its passions. Will we be perfect? Hardly. Christ personifies perfection. He gives us a picture of what perfection is, but our call is to perfection. But friends, when we fail... Don't delude yourself. You are making a decision to choose sin. And sin has lost its authority over you. You are handing authority back to a defeated foe that was slain by Christ himself when his blood was shed on Calvary, when he entered into the grave, and when he rose three days later, proclaiming sin's death, destruction, and inability to have control and authority in your life. Amen? He goes on, he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We see that Paul gives us a picture that that our bodies are instruments. Other translations might have this rendered as weapons. That our bodies are to be used for one purpose or another. He says, don't use your bodies, don't allow them to be, to be used in the service of unrighteous ends. Don't allow your bodies to be used as, as members of unrighteousness. You know, what does that look like? 
Well, man, I, I walk up. I didn't pay for one of these lilies, but, but I really want one. I mean, I want it on my table. And so I walk up at the end of the service, and I grab one when no one is looking, and I walk out. I have used my hands to engage in theft. I see somebody that I don't particularly like and I start to think things about them that aren't particularly kind and I begin to, to think in my mind how great it would be if this person tripped, fell, or something bad happened to them. I am using my mind as an instrument for unrighteousness. So frequently we've given our, our, our tongues over to be used as instruments of unrighteousness. But Paul says it. He says, man, the old self has been crucified. The old self has, has died with Christ. Christ died so that its authority over our lives might have no power, might have no impact, that we might be able to overcome sin and death through Christ. And he says that we are to use our bodies not for unrighteous things, but unto righteousness. That we should use our tongue to, to praise those around us, not to run them down. That we should use our hands to give aid to the poor, not to take things that don't belong to us. That we should use our minds to constructively glorify God, not to run down and pursue our own passions and lusts and desires. It says that we present our whole bodies to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And our members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul tells us that, that the law was added so that trespasses might increase. First to it is the curse of the law. Man, we recognize our, our inability, we recognize our shortcomings, we recognize our, our complete failure on all things, but that God stepped in, provides forgiveness of sin, and he extends to us forgiveness and grace in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, for the person here today that is saved, that you have salvation in Jesus, the word to you is no. No, the close union that you have in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. No, that that Christ died for sins once for all. There's nothing you can add to it, nothing that you can contribute to that. And then live as someone who has a life in which sin has no authority over. Paul writes and he says, friends, stop living as those who are enslaved to sin and live as those who have freedom from sin's authority. But you see the other message just for those who, who have not surrendered their lives, they have not yet given their lives over to Christ, that, that, that God in Christ sent his son to come and to live a perfect and sinless life. That what you were unable to do in your imperfections and your failings, Christ did perfectly. He died at the hands of his creation. He laid down his life as an offering for sin, as an offering for failure, as an offering for our inability to overcome these things. And he extends to us forgiveness. And Paul writing in Romans 10, 9 and 10 said it this way. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let me pray for us.